The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is the journalist Tanya Brannigan, whose new book deals with China's cultural revolution, Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. Tanya, welcome. As I understand it from the way you described in this book, you say you spent several years in China as a correspondent and this book sort of comes out of what you started to become aware was the the story that was sort of behind every other story you were writing. Is that a, is that a reasonable way of expressing it? Yes. So of course I knew about the Cultural Revolution. I knew it happened. It had been devastating. But I also felt sort of when I went out there, it was something that seemed to be so far behind in China's past, because the country had just been on this sort of extraordinary path of transformation, obviously, that we'd all seen. And it was only really when I was there that it began to seem as if it emerged in almost every story I covered, whether that be about the economy, whether it be about family relationships, whether it be about politics, that it was always there just under the surface, something that wasn't really referred to in official discourse, except very rarely, and which ordinary people didn't talk about that much. And yet, as soon as you sort of peeled away just the slightest layer, it was sort of the explanation for everything, the country's pivot point, and it really just underlays so much and was clearly so raw to so many people as well. Yeah, I mean, it's very much living memory, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And that's really sort of the heart of the book is not so much what happened then as why it matters now and why people remember it and how people remember it, because it's a very tangled and painful and confusing subject, even for people who want to recall it. I mean, the one thing that sort of really unites the people in my book, that they are all people who are unusual in having chosen to address this, and yet they remember it in such different ways. And you, uh, you also say, which, which sounds kind of monetary tone early on, you say the sort of joke among China hands that you know, after you've spent a month there, you can write a book. After you've spent a year, you can write an essay. And once you've been there for five years, you can maybe manage a sentence. Can you kind of unpack that for us a little? China is such an extraordinary and rich and complex and, and wonderful place in many regards, but also with a very sort of tormented history. And it is so easy, I think, for people to sort of have assumptions about it from outside. And then, of course, I suppose as with anywhere, the longer you live there, the more of the complexity you see, but perhaps particularly with China, because I think there is so much sort of stereotyping of it and it's understood still in quite simplistic ways. Um, I never really wanted to write a book. In fact, I used to joke that I was probably the only foreign journalist in Beijing not writing a book. Uh, I obviously sort of reneged on that. Um, it was just this one subject that seemed to me so powerful that I really sort of had to return to it. And I couldn't find the answers that I was looking for, I suppose, because I wanted to understand more. And that's really what drove me to write this. Can we start maybe by just for those listeners who 
have probably, as you say, you know, quite a stereotyped or, or basic idea of what the Cultural Revolution was. But just walk, walk a little bit through the history. I mean, it's it's sixty six to seventy six, as you set out in your in your book. But the it was kicked off by Mao in what what you describe as the May sixteenth notification, if that's right. And why did it start? What was the at the time the political rationale for it, and, and how did the first first few months and years of it play out? So one of the reasons it's so complex and so hard to understand is because it's really two things in one. The first and most important is that it's Mao's reassertion of power, of his absolute supremacy in the party after a period in which he's lost a a lot of authority. So in 1958, he launched the Great Leap Forward, which was this attempt, this hubristic attempt uh, to completely transform the country's economy, uh, to collectivise all its agriculture, uh, to overtake the UK in industrial production. And of course, what he was really thinking about was challenging the Soviet Union's leadership in uh, communism internationally. But the effect of that was absolutely devastating. We saw tens of millions of people die across China And it was reined in by figures within the party who were slightly more pragmatic and saw that it just couldn't go on. And so Mao had lost quite a lot of credibility uh, in that process. He'd really retreated from the economic sphere. So he was thinking more and more about politics and ideology, I suppose. Uh, On top of that, he'd seen Khrushchev denounce Stalin posthumously, and that had definitely got him thinking about his legacy and so forth. And in fact, in the May 16th notification, he sort of talks about Khrushchev-like figures who are nestling alongside us. Um, And I think there is a sense for him that he's uncertain of his place, despite the power he still holds. He's worried about his future. He's worried about his legacy. And in particular, he has his sights on his then heir apparent, Liu Shaoqi. And so the Cultural Revolution is launched by him as an attempt to wipe out opposition within the party. But what really makes it different from all the other purges and political upheavals and manipulations that we'd seen in Mao's time was that this time he turned to the masses. He went outside the party's structures. And that's the second aspect of the Cultural Revolution, which is that it is a mass movement in which people participate enthusiastically. There's a genuine ideological zealotry there. And Mao himself wants to remake the souls of his people. Uh, He's warned, even when the communists first come to power, that what he calls the sugar-coated bullets of the bourgeoisie are going to kind of pierce the souls of good communists and they're going to lose their way. And he feels that that has happened. So he uh, and the masses, particularly young people, launch this uh, ferocious attack which is both about removing political figures, but is also about reforming the culture, reforming the whole way of life. And because of that, it ripples right out across the country. It affects absolutely everyone and it tears apart households and workplaces, as well as having this impact at the very top. I mean, it seems particularly piercing, I mean, even to to Western Eye, that, that, as you say, at the heart of it, is children. Yes. I mean, and particularly in a country that, as you point out repeatedly in the book, has thousands of years of tradition of, you know, ancestor worship, of a kind of Confucian sense of the duties between, 
you know, children owe to their parents. It's a kind of complete inversion of what you elsewhere call the, the kind of moral architecture of the country. Yes. And that's what's so extraordinary and painful about it, I think. One of my interviewees who was herself sort of 13, 14, when the Cultural Revolution broke out, uh, and in fact, one of the teachers at her school was murdered, she said, you know, if you really want to destroy civilization, you begin in schools, because that's where it all starts. And I think, as you say, to see these people who were just children in so many cases, very, very young teenagers, I don't think it's a coincidence that Mao started there. They were more malleable, they were more idealistic, they were more naive, and they had been brought up in this revolutionary culture where they'd been imbued with these great ideals of martyrdom, of revolutionary sacrifice, of extreme and radical action. And yet at the same time, they had never put any of these things into action in the way that perhaps their parents had. And so they were, in many cases, I think, a generation that was sort of looking for a cause. And Mao, of course, gave it to them. And the, the kind of ground zero, which is one of the cases that you look into quite deeply of, of the Cultural Revolution, is, is the death of Teacher Bian. Can you tell us about Teacher Bian a little? She was the vice principal of a girls' school in Beijing. Um, she was well-respected. But she was also uh, the daughter of a, a bourgeois figure, which was, of course, dangerous for her, even though, in fact, she was a party member, a very dedicated party member. And so she was in a very vulnerable position when the Cultural Revolution broke out, as, as pretty much everyone in a position of authority was, bar, of course, Mao himself. And students at her school put up what was called a big character poster denouncing her and other members of the school leadership. And at that moment... There's a big character poster, sorry, which you which you mentioned throughout the book. Are these just essentially big characters, i.e. Cap giant capital letters? Yes, these sort of screaming kind of placards, I suppose you would say, in a sense. There is a, a longer history of them in China, but they're perhaps best known during the Cultural Revolution that you would see these big sort of striking denunciations posted up around the place. Um, and... In fact, um, one of the first big character posters is sort of what really kicks off the formation of Red Guard groups. So somebody put one's up, puts one up on a, a campus uh, at a university and Mao then has that poster broadcast over the radio. And so there's this sense that now the floodgates are opened and we start to see these posters going up everywhere. We see Red Guard groups forming. Uh, and so at this girls' school, which was very successful school full of the teachers of political figures and so on this poster goes up denouncing her for crimes such as for example sort of opposing chairman mao which meant that somebody had said well what happens if there's a big fire or something should we take the picture of chairman mao with us when we go out of the school and she was wise enough not to sort of say no directly, but she said to them, well, of course, it's very important to leave quickly or something. And this became kind of one of the charges against her, which I think gives you a sense of the absurdity and the viciousness of the time. Um, there's definitely the feeling on the part of her family is that it was fanned as well by personal grudges, which is another very typical uh, part of the Cultural Revolution. But she was one of several uh, teachers at the school who were persecuted, were hounded, were forced to sort of march around and carry huge heavy baskets of earth in blazing heat, were beaten. 
and she was beaten to the point of collapse, was not given medical help until far, far too late, wasn't taken to hospital for hours when she was. The doctor was reluctant to treat her because he thought he might get into trouble for treating a counter-revolutionary. And she is believed to be the first victim in Beijing. And that case has really become one of the things that I think stands for the horror, I suppose, of the Cultural Revolution. Because also her husband chose to remember her, of course, and that's the other thing, that there are so many victims who were forgotten, whose names we don't know even now. But her husband, although at first he had to mourn her in secret, was always determined that she would be remembered. And so at last, after the Cultural Revolution was over, he made sure that people remembered this story. There's a very piercing account in your, in your book of how he he kind of made a sort of secret shrine almost in his house, didn't he? Yes. he. It was so dangerous, I mean, to even mourn somebody who died in those circumstances. Again, it seems so unthinkable to us. But yes, he sort of essentially rigged up a sort of secret shrine that would look like a bookcase when it was closed off to ordinary people. But he and his children uh, could remember and, and mourn uh, their wife and, and mother in secret. And it seems, you know, again, part of the sort of centrality of this, the narrative, that one of the people who had a, had a role, one of the children who had a role in, in the death of Teacher Bian, became the sort of poster girl for the Red Guards. This is Song Bin Bin. So she wrote the first poster denouncing uh, Teacher Bian. And she was one of the first and most prominent Red Guards at the school. She actually was also the person who took Teacher Bian to hospital, however late, and made sure that she did get some sort of treatment. But because of her prominence, she very much became the central figure, and especially because of Mao's first great rally of the Red Guards in Tiananmen Square. So he held a series of these over 1966, around a million young people packed into the square uh, to sort of venerate him. And Song Bin Bin then climbed up to the rostrum where he was there and pinned a red armband upon him, which was taken as a sign that the Red Guards now had his approval. And he said to her, uh, oh, what's your name? Sort of Bin Bin as in sort of gentle or refined. And she said, yes. And he said, well, be marshal. And so... She became this figurehead because the propaganda operation then emblazoned her across the front pages of newspapers, uh, said she'd changed her name to be Marshall, which she denies ever happened, but made her the figurehead of the Red Guard movement. And so she became associated with all the violence that then rippled out across Beijing and then across the country now that it was known that Mao had really given his approval to the movement. So in the days before the rally, I think there had been two deaths in Beijing. And in the days afterwards, there were hundreds that followed that month. And as you describe it, when you talk about the, the movement, I mean, it really was literally a movement. There was this thing, what, what come to be called the Great Link Up, where at least, as you say, it's like a sort of homicidal version of American teenagers on spring break, that all these children just sort of left school and you know, roamed around the country spreading terror. Is that roughly how it worked? It's it's a very complicated thing, I think, for people to understand because there was this real idealism 
that many people felt was at the core of it. And that encompassed many things. For some people, it simply was a matter of uh, going around telling people how marvellous Mao was, and they shied away from violence in some cases. I think that's sort of important to acknowledge. But one of the things I found most fascinating uh, with one of the Red Guards I spoke to was that she sort of said even at the time, you know, she couldn't bring herself to beat people. And then she felt at the same time that maybe that was a lack of courage on her part. Because it's so hard to imagine, I think, being caught up in that atmosphere where you're told, you know, you've been brought up to revere this man as a god. You're told that your duty is to sort of save your country and that to do that, you have to be pure and you have to be determined and you can't soften. And so even people who sort of drew back from the violence, I think, sometimes wondered if they were doing the right thing, particularly the children. We go back to this point about how young they were, how easily manipulated and how vulnerable. And of course, you know, some of them did do, many of them did do terrible, terrible things. As I said, we saw two million people die across the country in the Cultural Revolution, tens of millions of people hounded. I would say as well, many of the people who died actually died in the later stages of the Cultural Revolution after the Red Guards had been reined in. There was a much more sort of bureaucratic phase of persecution, if I can put it that way, in which it was really military and officials who were condemning people to death in in large numbers. But yes, I mean, the Red Guards exacted a terrible, terrible toll. And they are having now to live with the consequences of things that they did as children. But of course, also many, many families left without fathers, husbands, wives. It's your reading of it. I mean, you talk about how this great link up was, you know, it was a campaign and a holiday. And the you know, is is it a sort of balked idealism that's the central drive in this, or is there a sort of just intoxication with power? You know, which we all know teenagers respond very strongly to, to you know, to freedom and power and and the chance to to lord it over others. I mean, do you think there's a Lord of the Flies element going? On? I think there are so many different factors because it's such a complex and fractured movement. And that's one of the really important things to remember, that there is zealotry going on. There are personal grudges going on. You know, people see a chance to get one over on a colleague who's slighted them or caused them problems. Um, There are the sort of the family dynamics, people perhaps having complicated, difficult relationships with their parents. And then on top of that, yes, there is this sheer sense of intoxication as well, of being caught up in this moment, and often not really knowing anymore where the lines were because everything had been torn up. You know, there was no longer any sense of right or wrong. There were there weren't adults telling you what to do. I think people often sort of draw on the Lord of the Flies analogy, but I think the difference is that in Lord of the Flies, people are obviously on this sort of desert island. The constraints of civilization have just sort of fallen away. In this case, it was really sort of directed from the top. And the constraints of civilization were very actively torn away by Mao, who unleashed them. I mean, it was a deliberate act on his part. And what makes the Cultural Revolution the Cultural Revolution is not just all the horror that happened and the violence and the excesses, but the fact that it was a political campaign. Yeah. And you talk about the ripping away of civilization. I mean, what's fascinating is here and there, you talk about the way in which Maoism either co-opted or tried to borrow from 
imperial tradition in certain respects, but then, you know, radically tore it apart in others. So people sometimes call Mao China's last emperor. And I think there are so many aspects of his rule um, that are clearly recognisable in the way he manipulated people. I mean, very specific things about the way history is remembered is, for example, is another good one that history has always been particularly important in China because it has a sort of moral function. I mean, sort of Chinese intellectuals have argued it really kind of takes the place of what we might think of as sort of Judeo-Christian morality in, in our own society, that instead of having religious roots, morality is really about looking to these historical primers from the, the past that offer you a sort of a moral account of what to do. And so the control of history and the narrative that Mao embarks upon is important. And of course, Mao himself draws upon historical analogies very frequently. Um, when he talked about the first emperor sort of burning books and burying intellectuals, you know, he says, well, of course, we did it too, but we did it on a much grander scale. So he himself is drawing these very explicit analogies. And Mao changed tack, as you say, after two or three years, he sort of having released this you know, extraordinary wave of ideological and, and real world violence he sort of went that's enough kids why did he do that and what what followed i think firstly he had succeeded essentially he had reasserted his control nobody was in any doubt by that point that he had absolute uh, unchallenged authority once more leo shaoqi was locked up in a cell where he would die so in that sense the red guards had served their purpose we had also seen clearly a transformation. We'd also seen a period of such chaos that it was sort of disastrous on many fronts just for sort of economic functioning and so forth. And so even he seemed to have really tired of the chaos and perhaps to feel it was getting out of hand and he no longer needed them. So at that point, the military were called in to sort of rein in the Red Guards and they were dispatched off to the countryside and over the period of the Cultural Revolution, we're talking about 17 million children and teenagers, uh, again, some as young as sort of 13, 14, being sent not only hundreds of miles away from their parents, but also really back a century because they, they were going from the cities to places that didn't have running water, didn't have electricity, perhaps not reachable by road. And they were going from studying to suddenly laboring in the fields, carrying huge loads. I mean, it was just unimaginable for so many of them. Many of them, I think, set off feeling quite idealistic about the project and thinking that as they had been told, well, we can kind of drag the countryside into modernity. We can be good revolutionaries and help these peasants. And at the same time, you know, we'll, we'll learn from the peasants because this was, of course, perhaps an even more important part of Mao's argument. These softened city kids are going to learn from the peasantry how to be real communists. But of course, very quickly, that wore off and they realised just how gruelling and punishing it was going to be. And yet, and this is one of the things that to me was most fascinating, it's something that people regard now with this rather sort of bittersweet nostalgia. And it's the one part of the Cultural Revolution that authorities will talk about, because Xi Jinping spent around seven years in the countryside himself. And it's become this sort of founding story of how he learned from the people. It demonstrates his grit and his determination. 
and his dedication to the ordinary folk. And all of that uh, detail about the sort of the, the, the pain of his ears, in a sense, is true. But of course, it's packaged in a way that doesn't talk about why he ended up really going down to the countryside. It doesn't talk about all the children who died in the countryside and never came back from malnutrition or work accidents. It, it doesn't focus on any of the pain of the Cultural Revolution. It becomes this sort of uplifting tale. Is this this mass rustication of this so-called educated youth, is your reading of it that it's a continuation of that first phase of the Cultural Revolution to the extent that it's geared to essentially destroying the kind of atomic unit of, of rival authority or any rival authority of the party, which is the family? I think it's an element within that. I mean, I think it was also a very pragmatic effort to think, what do we do with all these young people that we've unleashed um, at a point where we don't really want to get universities and things back up and running in, in the way they were? Mao wanted to sort of carry through. I mean, even in his last months, he sort of talked about the Cultural Revolution not being finished. He had this sense of sort of unfinished business. So I, I think it was very pragmatic, but there was also a sort of ideological aspect, which was, yes, partly about sort of transforming society. And I think that did include the belief that the family was sort of a bourgeois institution. There's the, the song of the time, which was mother and father are dear, but Chairman Mao is dearer, that family bonds were relatively trivial, perhaps a little bit selfish, introspective. And what really mattered, of course, was one's dedication to the political cause, politics and the revolution were everything. Yeah. Now, having framed that sort of sense of what happened then, obviously, as you say, your book is substantially about how it's been understood since. And one of the surprises you set up quite early on is say, the amnesia about it, the fact that it's not talked about now is more recent than it seems. Can you say why that is and how the, the kind of history of its reception or memory has, has shifted so profoundly? So it's, it's not completely taboo now and it's never been discussed completely freely. But as you say, there's definitely been a shift from a period of more openness and more discussion. And so particularly in the first years after the Cultural Revolution was over, I think Deng Xiaoping and others really wanted to remind people, you know, this was a terrible time. Uh, he, of course, had been purged himself twice. This was a terrible time. And this is why we're making this turn away from Maoism towards the market. So it's this radical rupture in China. But, you know, there's a reason for it. And so this outpouring of scar literature, which were these sort of memoirs and novels and so forth about the experience in the countryside in particular, uh, but other aspects of the Cultural Revolution too, they were quite useful for authorities because they really reminded people what had happened and how gruelling it had been and created the sense that it was time for something new. Deng also oversaw an official verdict on the Cultural Revolution. There was obviously this sort of process of rehabilitation where this, these disgraced cadres were brought back into the party and this narrative really of the or verdict on the Cultural Revolution was drawn up. But what's very striking is that when he's talking to the people drafting it, uh, he says the point of this is to unite people and get them to look forward. So it's definitely not saying, let's remember this thing forever. Let's inscribe it in history so nobody can forget. It's saying, let's draw a line under this 
we need to acknowledge this has happened and deal with it, but then we're going to move on. You, many of your interviewees seem to think that that, you know, this, there's a phrase that you use, eating bitterness, is a kind of national cultural characteristic. I mean, do you think there, there is a, something kind of baked into Chinese culture that does, if you like, prefer unity to remembrance? I think really the issue with eating bitterness is just that Chinese people have suffered and endured so much for such a long time, long before Mao came to power, incidentally, um, and at the hands of many people, including foreign powers such as Britain, that eating bitterness is sort of the, the choice of the powerless, I suppose you would say, in a sense, it's almost just accepting that that is your fate and that that's what you have to do, but sort of taking a certain pride in it. So I think it really comes from that sense of endurance. Um, I think it's very, very hard to generalise about places. People often think of China as being a, a sort of very collective society. In many ways, it's highly individualistic, particularly since the Cultural Revolution. And I would say that's been one of the key things in making people think much more in terms of survival and about their own interests, because people had to do that to get through it. Uh, it's not really perhaps a cultural point as it is as much what's sort of born of experience, I suppose I would say. So in that sense, did the Cultural Revolution help to pave the way for capitalism? Yes, I think it did. You know, there are sort of more practical things as well in that it's sort of uprooted so many of the state structures. It meant, for example, that you had a lot of undereducated young people uh, with no jobs to go into, particularly when they came back from the countryside. I mean, that's one of the things that led to the sort of the decision to permit entrepreneurs, small scale entrepreneurs, because they just needed something to do with these people, essentially. So you can see it contributed in quite pragmatic ways. It made a contribution, I think, to the development of industry uh, and enterprise in rural areas. So some people argue in that sense, it was quite a big contribution. And then on top of that, you know, entrepreneurs, business people have sort of said to me as well that it was simply where they got their drive. I mean, for example, many of the people who were sent down to the countryside learned that you had to graft and you had to seize any opportunity that you could find and you had to get on. So yes, I think there are many ways in which it contributed. At the same time, I think actually the the reform and opening, as welcome as it was, and as much as a relief as it clearly was for so many people after the horrors of the Cultural Revolution, it was also a kind of a trauma in itself for some people, because they'd spent all these years working towards this attainment of communism, this communist utopia that was held up for them. And then not only had they made these immense sacrifices and seen all the terrible costs along the way, but suddenly they were told essentially that that was completely pointless. Actually, we're not doing that. You know, we're never going to get to this communist utopia. We're, we're just going to go down this path of socialism um, with Chinese characteristics. So we'll, we'll keep the communist politics, but we'll pursue capitalism. And for many, that was in itself a really wrenching, disorienting moment that I think was profoundly traumatic for them, actually. And the people who choose, and you meet many of them in your book, to try to remember the Cultural Revolution in some sense as it was, rather than to kind of, if you like, gloss over it. How did they prosper and how did that change? Because you, you bring in, for instance, there's 
a schoolmate of Song Bin Bin and teacher Bian who who tried to collect testimony. You have somebody who set up a, a museum, the Cultural Revolution, which turns out kind of hard to visit. Yes. Um, so as you were mentioning earlier, it's a subject that has become much harder to address over the years. I would say particularly over the last few years, we've seen under Xi Jinping a leader who's very concerned about history to the point that he sees historical nihilism as being as much of an existential threat to the party as things like uh, Western constitutional democracy, for example. What does he mean by historical nihilism? Is there a clear understanding of that? Well, it's uh, denigrating communist heroes, for example, denying the past, um, criticising not only Lenin but Stalin, but even, we're told, saying that the periods sort of pre and post Mao were sort of distinct and different periods, which is just astonishing, obviously. It's an attempt to kind of elide that dramatic turn we see in China following the end of the Cultural Revolution and say, well, there's really no difference. And and the narrative that she has constructed for China, and which has been very un- important under him, uh, builds upon an older idea, I suppose. It's this idea that the Communist Party saved China from what's called the century of humiliation, which is um, abuse by foreign powers, and that it has brought it once more to greatness. It unified it, which is true. It brought it to sort of greatness, the forefront of the world stage. And so all of that is taken into one long, smooth historical path. It's it's a kind of historic inevitability, obviously not in the sort of classically Marxist sense, but but it's it's their own conception of historical inevitability, which is the, the march of the party rescuing China. And so to point to the catastrophes or to point to the disjunctures, I think, is just too difficult and too painful. And how much was 1989 a kind of pivot in this this process how how important were the Tiananmen Square protests in in the way that the party sort of shifted its its understanding of the cultural revolution and its its you know view of how history should be written and understood it's quite a key moment there's actually a terrific book called um, never forget national humiliation which really talks about the way that the party starts to turn to its past in 1989. So, of course, there had already, already been what we'd, what's known as patriotic education before that point. But the party really doubles down on this after 1989 because that idea of serving the people had already been so badly damaged in the Cultural Revolution and was really sort of finished off, I think, in 1989. You know, turning your guns against your own people just fundamentally left them with really no idea how to to sell themselves to the public. And so we see a narrative of economic well-being. Uh, you know, we're going to make your life uh, better. You're going to get wealthy. You're going to get richer, which of course happened and was, and was wonderful for many people. But alongside that, very importantly, came this story of uh, a nationalist tale of China's re-emergence and reassertion of its place in the world. And so after 1989, you see a lot more money being spent on organising trips, uh, on on building these what are known as red tourism sites, which are things like Mao's birthplace and uh, Yan'an, which was the communist base in the 30s and so forth. These get turned into sites and then they start bussing people into them and so forth. And we see school textbooks asserting those things much more 
So, so after 1989, we see the party really doubling down on what's called patriotic education and telling people all about this narrative of how the Communist Party has saved China and reasserted its place in the world. And that's done through school textbooks. It's done through what are known as red tourism sites like Mao's birthplace in Shaoshan and the um, communists' base in the 1930s at Yan'an and so forth, and bussing lots of officials into these places. And then all this goes up even a notch again uh, under Xi Jinping. There's this kind of extraordinary detail that... um... I mean, you have a visit to this place, Nanjushin, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, um, which is a kind of model agrarian communist village, which has somehow been co-opted by capitalism. There are these sort of kitsch restaurants where you can go and have sort of Red Guard-themed restaurants. I know, weirdly, in St. Petersburg, there's a restaurant called Lenin's Mating Call, which is full of you know, giant busts of Lenin and Stalin. Maybe it's a a universal post-communist situation. But are these harbingers of kind of capitalism reclaiming this stuff as kitsch or are they part of the you know historical education process you're describing um so things like the cultural revolution restaurant in beijing are very much i think capitalism seizing its opportunities which are to be found everywhere even in the communist past it also i think plays though to the genuine nostalgia that many people have for the era. And that seems such a hard thing for us to understand because obviously of the horrors of it. But people do also remember the sense that workers were more respected. For example, people remember the sense that they personally may have had more freedom, which as a sort of as a teenager, you know, if you didn't fall foul of politics, you clearly did have a kind of liberation in some senses from that routine of parental authority and school and books. And people see it as a time of greater meaning, I think, and sort of purity. And so for all those reasons, as odd as it might seem to us, there is a a real affection in the way that many people look back. And in fact, a number of my interviewees said to me, you know, this this is what I'll tell you about the era and the horrors. But actually, I can assure you there are more people who think fondly of it and, and would like in some respects even to return to it. And those people are not all like the former Red Guard, the sort of completely unabashed Maoist who still thinks the only thing that went wrong was that it ended. And, you know, yes, it shouldn't have been that violent, but but basically it was a good idea. They're also people who I think felt that there was more regard for ordinary people Um even though, of course, many workers and farmers suffered too in that time, and that there was a kind of purity. You didn't have the corruption of officials that we've seen in more recent years. They, they see it as a time of meaning, of community, and as so often uh, with nostalgia anywhere, it's really, I think, as much a comment on what China is like now as it is on what China was like back then. But it's not just brainwashing that makes people think about the past in this way. I mean, it, it's a real emotional response that they have to it. And in many cases, I mean, I think, you know, we talked a bit about the sent down youth and the way that Xi Jinping has sort of used this account of his time to sort of build his uh, status as leader. But actually, I think it's something that very much started from the grassroots, from ordinary people who were harking back to that time already. And I think the leadership sort of saw an opportunity there. There is a, a- Kind of extraordinary. You mentioned your unabashed Maoist, you know, who you, who you met and talked to. If you're talking about the same man, I'm talking, but that he's got a sort of friendship or at least connection with somebody who's on completely the, the other side of the debate, and who, when they were 
Red Guards were in different factions and would have killed each other. And yet, you know, one of them's, you know, this, this sort of cultural revolution revisionist, if you like, is, is supporting this mad Maoist and giving him money and trying to help him out. How do you read that? To me, this was so important that I didn't want to write a book that was just about all the horrors and the excesses. You know, there are there are books that you can go and read about that. If you all if all you want to know is all the sort of terrible things that happened in the Cultural Revolution, uh, frankly, there are other places to look for that. As I said, I was interested in what it means today, and one of the things I thought was important is that people have managed to find, if not healing, at least in many cases, some way to live with this awful past. People have gone on. Some of them have flourished. Some of them have managed to form friendships of a kind with former enemies. And I think it's not necessarily that they like each other particularly, but they recognise that they had this experience in common that has shaped them so deeply. And they have found some way of living with each other. And I suppose you could say that that's really the deepest rebuttal of the Cultural Revolution. I mean, Mao used to say, you know, who are our enemies? Who are our friends? This is the most important question of the revolution. The whole point about the Cultural Revolution is about drawing sharp lines. It's about cutting people off. It's about denouncing people. It's about heroes and villains. And what I wanted in the book is to make it clear that we really can't have heroes and villains. We can't imagine what it was to live through that time, but also that some people in China as well have managed to work through that and to find a way of living together and to find a way of overcoming their experiences. And I think that really matters too. As you go through researching it, you know, there, there are these moments when the fear of the state repressive apparatus now, it sort of flickers there in the back. I mean, sometimes it's very obvious you're being trailed everywhere by a secret policeman, you know, museums close when you attempt to visit them, all, the, all this stuff. But you have people's children when you're trying to speak to these veterans, saying, saying to you, taking you aside and sort of saying, look, be careful with what he says. And I think that's completely understandable. You know, many people obviously don't want to talk about the Cultural Revolution at all, as we said, and that's not just state repression. Um, a lot of that is the personal trauma involved. But it is also this sense still that it's very easy to cross the lines. And I was there, I was fortunate to be there at a time when people did want to address these things, um, but I think people would be much more reluctant to do so now. There was a space, partly because the internet was a bit freer, albeit still censored, but but freer than it is now, when um, even Chinese mainstream media were able to sort of touch upon these subjects to some degree, uh, and it really feels as if that space has vanished now. Well, you actually say, I think, towards the end of the book, you know, this book could not be written if I were to begin it today. Yes, there was a point where people had really sort of clawed out that space in, in various ways. I mean, civil society had managed to kind of establish a sort of space for itself, uh, academia. And we've now seen the party sort of reinsert itself into all these worlds and and control them much more tightly. And how... <laughs> How anxious are you about that direction of travel? Because, I mean, you you do talk a bit about how, you know, there is this sort of appetite that the methods, I think you talk about Bo Zhilai using the exact kind of playbook of Mao and the Cultural Revolution, and, and there's huge public appetite for it. You know, it works. 
Do you think that's still there? Do you think that, that we're heading heading back, if you like? I mean, you've got someone who says to you, I think, you know, it still hasn't ended. I think that's certainly a deep fear that many people in China have. It's one of the reasons that people have wanted to talk about the Cultural Revolution, to document what's happened in various ways, that fear that those impulses are still there. I mean, I, I would say as well that when I wrote this, I really felt people should see it not just as a book about China, but about what human beings do and what human beings are capable of in certain circumstances. The Cultural Revolution is obviously something that broke out in a particular time and a particular place, and it wouldn't take that form elsewhere. And so we wouldn't see a, a precise rerun of the Cultural Revolution today. It's a much more educated and sophisticated and cynical society in China. Um, but I think people can certainly see echoes and not the people in my book, but others recently have suggested parallels in some of the decisions that she has made. And particularly, I think, in the handling of COVID, that feeling that somebody could come and drag you out of your home and cart you off, for example, that level of control of your daily life. I think people saw parallels with the Cultural Revolution, um, that sense of growing control of the party state, as I said, over not just things like academia, but business and entertainment and so forth. All those things are things that have rung alarm bells with some in China. Only a very few people have dared to talk about that. So we saw a scholar, for example, talking about a personality cult emerging a few years ago. He promptly lost his job. More recently, during the protests against zero COVID, there were actually people on the streets, uh, some of whom held up placards saying, we want reform, not the cultural revolution. So yes, there are certainly people who see parallels. Now, Masha Gessen, writing about the sort of post-Soviet world, talks about well, Homo Sovieticus or whatever he became, about essentially, you know, the, the citizens of the former Soviet Union suffering a kind of collective form of PTSD, and that that's what you need to understand to understand why those countries are as they are. Do you think the same thing's true of China? Do you think there's a sort of collective psychological wound here? Yes, absolutely. I think the Cultural Revolution runs really right through the heart of China uh, and the hearts of its people. And many of the younger people, of course, may not know that. I mean, that's one of the striking things. A lot of younger people have said to me, perhaps I know something terrible happened in the Cultural Revolution to my family, but I don't know what because nobody ever talks about it and they won't talk about it. Other young people simply don't know. So there's a psychotherapist I talk to in the book who starts work with survivors of the Cultural Revolution and, and realises that her own family were affected too, but she's never heard a word of this before. It's only when she starts sort of embarking on the subject that she realises. And so it's this deep, deep trauma, I think. As I said, I, I think there is also hope. You know, there is remarkable healing. I felt, you know, one of the stories in the book that really stayed with me is a story I was told by a psychotherapist about a, a young boy who'd been a apparently sort of impeccably behaved student at university and then suddenly wrote this extremely graphic account of attacking um, one of his lecturers, a very visceral account. And so the university authorities saw this because he'd posted it online and he ended up being taken for treatment with this psychotherapist. And it was only when his family were sort of called in to work with him 
that it emerged his grandfather had been murdered by Red Guards in front of his father. And his father had never spoken a word of any of this. And yet the lessons that he had shared with his son, which, you know, the defences he'd put up, you know, you never let anybody see what you're thinking, you never show any hint of anger, all these defences that he'd put up to sort of try and protect his son in the end had got his son to this place. That So there are these very deep transgenerational traumas that we see transmitted. But on the other side of that, we have this father who is clearly able to love and cherish and care for his son and to work with him to try and get him to a better place. And I think there is hope there too. Yeah. How has the fact that there is a generation which no longer remembers it directly, even if there's you know all sorts of psychological transmission, how has that affected she's calculus about how to retain and transmit power? I mean, you said that the, the sort of memory of the chaos in a sense, was a sort of gift to the post-cultural revolution generation of leaders because people were all actually, let's let's have unity rather than freedom and so forth. Do you think she's having to recalibrate now he has a generation isn't quite as scared of the cultural revolution as viscerally as their parents are? Yes. I mean, it's very interesting precisely because the party hasn't wanted to talk about it. They no longer have this powerful notion of them as being sort of the bulwark against chaos. Now, Obviously, they invoke a similar idea in sort of a different context. For example, they love to focus on chaos in the United States in terms of its handling of COVID or the gun violence or ever to say, look, you could be living in a place like this and instead you're living with us. But I think for so many people in China, there has been for so long that very real sense that things could degenerate again. You know, thank God things are getting better. We know what the alternative is. And that's obviously just, as you say, not not there for younger people anymore. I mean, it was, it was striking with one of the former Red Guards I speak to. He talks about his son wanting to protest in 1989 when the Tiananmen protests started. And he was absolutely determined that his son would not because, you know, he he said turmoil. You know, that's the thing. To him, the thing to be afraid of was not political fanaticism or untrammeled power at the top. The The danger was turmoil. And that's an extremely widespread view, I think. But as you say, it's it's less widespread among younger people. And on top of that, of course, um, the economic legitimacy argument uh, is also unravelling. So for so long, we saw this extraordinary period where China had double digit growth. And then even after that, it was leading the world. Well, the IMF is saying that this year will be the first year that growth in China is equal to or even lags global growth. And that's a very, very different scenario for them, I see. So we've seen under Xi Jinping a turn towards ideology, a turn towards much greater focus, as we said, on the sort of historical narrative and this idea of restoring China to its great place in the world. But it's much trickier sailing for them, I think, from now on. And is there a sense then that Xi's back is increasingly against the wall, even though he looks more powerful than before? I think you'd have to be very foolish to bet against the Communist Party. I mean, it's just an extraordinary story of success. If you think they sort of start with 13 guys in a back room in Shanghai somewhere, having to run away from secret police, having their inaugural meeting, and then here we are, over 100 years later, they've outlived their big brother, Soviet Union. They're still there. They're still going strong. She himself has an extraordinary level of control. If you look at the party congress, he's now there indefinitely. They've basically got rid of term limits. 
at the very top, or he's got rid of term limits at the very top. He's he's put all his people, his men, uh, into the key positions. So it's tricky territory, I think, particularly their handling of COVID, the disastrous, the the harshness of the imposition of zero COVID, the refusal to lift it when it became clear it was time to sort of alleviate it, but then also sort of the sudden flip, I think, has perhaps shaken a lot of people's faith in what's called performance legitimacy, you know, this sense that the party would take good care of you and make sure everything went okay. So it's difficult for them, but it's a party that's very resilient and has often proved very adaptable, um, as we saw with the end of the Cultural Revolution and the the turn to the market. Yeah. Uh, I want to end by just asking about one story that, of the many in the book that I found haunting, but uh, seems particularly kind of telling and, and horrible. It's a, a guy you speak to who informed on his own mother. Now, the, he was quite open about these events. He's obviously really trying to work through it. He, it's something that he hasn't buried. You know, he, he talks to you, as lots of people dodge doing. But you weren't completely... You were troubled by his candour, weren't you? Can you ex- explain a bit about that? I think it's just so impossible, really, for us to imagine what it was like to live through that time and the decisions that we might have made. You know, it's often quite striking when you look back. A friend of mine sort of said to me once, it's amazing how everybody thinks they'd have been in the resistance in France. Um, (laughs) And I, I, I feel it is a bit like that, that it's very easy for us to imagine that we would have made different or better decisions. What's striking about Zhang Hongbing is that he has chosen to make this case known. You know, he has chosen to be open about what he did but he How clearly old was he? he was 17 his family had been through a very difficult time his elder sister had died his mother felt because of the great link up there were a lot of meningitis cases which sort of spread as the red guards travelled and she came back from a, a trip and died of meningitis so he'd lost his older sister uh, his grandmother had been forced out of the family home by the the rules she was told she had to go back to the countryside his father had been persecuted and then his mother had been under suspicion and been held for sort of a couple of years. So this teenager who's been through this unimaginably difficult time and ends up by denouncing his mother, he thinks of it as something that happened completely within the political context of the time. So he says, well, you know, I'd been brought up with the Maoist ideology and I didn't see my mother. I sort of saw this counter-revolutionary who was daring to attack Chairman Mao, who was daring to criticise Chairman Mao, and therefore I had to do my duty. And I don't know if that's the whole story. I mean, it seemed to me he came from a very complex and upsetting set of circumstances, and he was 17 years old. And I think what I really wanted people to think about is the expectations, perhaps, that we have of people that... I wanted to get away from this idea that there are heroes and villains and that somebody is either a perpetrator or they're somebody who heroically can kind of face up to everything they did. I think he has dealt with that situation as best as he knows how to. But there are things that, to an outsider, are very difficult to understand. You know, in some ways, for example, he sort of talks about it, his mother really having to take responsibility as well for what happened because she had not raised him to sort of question the ideas of Mao and so forth. And I think to hear someone say that of the mother that they've denounced and who subsequently was shot is a very 
odd and challenging thing to hear. But I would certainly hope that people don't judge the people I've spoken to, because I think what I wanted to try and interrogate was the fact that one can have different responses to people, that people don't have to behave in a certain way to deserve our respect and our sympathy and our understanding. Tony Brannigan, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Thank you.